This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And at the same time as European cities seared through record heat waves, international scientists released a report which confirms there is no doubt left when it comes to scientific consensus on climate change. It's human-induced and the warming that we're experiencing is unprecedented in 2,000 years. Cam Walker is with Friends of the Earth. He brings us up to date monthly with all things environmental protection and policy and it's great to have you with us, Cam. Thanks, good to be here. And I think most people in Australia, we know from surveys and I suppose from our own lives that uh, people have been um, sort of uh, believing the, the scientific consensus for a long time. But what are these new reports telling us? Yeah, so um, climate deniers love to say, oh, it's only 97% consensus amongst the scientists, you know, whereas now it's been increased to 99%, which is very interesting. And basically, these reports go back and look at the last 2,000 years, and they look at things like sediment, um, ice um, cores, tree rings, all those things that allow you to look at what is the temperature. They're kind of proxies for understanding temperature at points in time. And they found out that in the last 2,000 years, there has been an unprecedented warming. It's been extreme and it's been global. And it's really important to understand that global bit because often climate deniers say, oh, yeah, but, you know, what about the mini ice age in Europe in the 17th century? And what this shows, this series of reports, is those little anomalies were very localised, whereas what we're witnessing now is global scale, which is consistent with climate change. And it's become increasingly clear that those little pockets of localised cooling tend to be as a result of volcanic eruptions, which then put um, materials into the atmosphere that create localised artificial cooling. Um, so, yeah, it's a really important bit of work. There's three lots of uh, studies that were put out in Nature and a journal called Nature Geoscience. And, I mean, some reports I've read, Cam, have suggested that this should sort of finally silence climate change deniers because we have that 99% scientific consensus on global warming. But, I mean, 90, 97% is already quite high. So do you think this will have an effect on, you know, finally silencing those who have disputed whether climate change and, and um, you know, global warming, human-induced climate change is a real thing? Uh, no, it won't. Those people, you know, at this point in the game, with everything we know about climate science, de deciding to be a climate denier is a political decision. It's not actually about science. And if you look at the demographics, the deniers tend to be male, they tend to be older, they tend to be white, and they tend to be very conservative. So it's no surprise that people like Pauline Hanson and, you know, other conservative politicians are deniers. This is about politics now. It's not actually about science. But I think for the rest of it, the vast majority who get that it's real and get that we're driving this phenomena and that we are driving at a rapid rate towards a very big brick wall, um, I hope that it makes the rest of us angrier and more focused on doing something about it. And the problem we have, of course, is that we still have a federal government that is run by climate deniers. It is a conservative government that hasn't had the light bulb moment. So hopefully we use this to, you know, fire ourselves up and put real fire in our bellies and really get on with the work that needs to be done. And this, the Paris Accords are still in place, although, uh, or maybe not with the US on board, um, but what impact do you think this will have with further climate negotiations? Will it steer it in a, any sort of a different direction or do you think it will bring uh, the countries or any sort of countries that are lagging behind um, more fully within the Paris Accords? I think it will have quite a significant impact. I think if you look globally, 
globally uh, in the last few weeks, the science around climate change has been absolutely terrifying. You know, we've got sea ice in collapse around Alaska. We've got a lot of the northern, the extreme northern hemisphere. Alaska, Siberia and Canada is on fire. There are wildfires in Greenland, like there aren't even forests in Greenland, you know. The heat wave in Europe is really uh, significant in terms of its impact on the politics of the European Union. Um, so I think that all of this happening collectively around the world, people are finding it harder and harder to say, oh, it's just natural cycles or nothing's going on. So I think that in September when the next UN meeting on climate change does happen, I think that more and more countries will be very focused on getting things done. And I think there's a phenomenon that's happening with Donald Trump being the president of the states and walking away. What's happening is the states are picking up the slack. So, you know, Colorado and California and places like that. It's the same in Australia uh, with the federal government walking away from climate action. Now, 80% of Australians live in states or territories that have a net zero uh, emissions target. Um, so, you know, most of us live in jurisdictions that get it. And I think that what all this information will do is kind of sharpen the, the focus of the sensible decision makers and really make them find a way to get on with doing what needs to be done, which is a rapid transition away from fossil fuels. And you say that Australia's walked away um, from climate action at the federal level, but we, we still are within the Paris Agreement and have emissions targets, but the, the Minister um, for Energy and Emissions did delay tabling emissions data, which has been a big deal. Um, and many journalists sort of saying, well, why, you know, under FOI, we've um, since learnt, I think the ABC put in an FOI request um, saying that, you know, we had the emissions data in May, it was delayed until later before the public was told that our emissions were rising. Why is this significant, do you think? Uh, because it implies that the government is acting in a dishonourable fashion by delaying the release of this data. They're required to release the data. Last year, they actually released it late in the day on the Friday before the grand final. You know, like, if that's not burying the story, I don't know what is. Um, this year, they delayed it. The report was was finished in May and it should just be a matter of putting it out into the public domain and yet the Minister sat on it and then it was leaked to the Australian newspaper which put a positive spin on it when it when it ran the story saying oh yes our emissions have gone up but overall it's a good news story. The only voice in that story really was the Minister. So you know it, this is a public document. I'm under a Senate ruling they're required to get it out within a certain period of time. They didn't do that and then it for some reason it ended up uh, with a newspaper that's, uh, you know, got a position that's normally supportive of the coalition government. If, if, you know, it's very hard not to use the word dodgy when you, when you consider this. You know, this is really important information. It tells us about where our economy is going and where our politics is going in terms of responding to climate science and the fact that this isn't the first time that the government has delayed the release of these figures and the fact that the ABC had to dig it up through a freedom of information request really is very worrying in terms of government transparency. And even as those figures have been released, Cam, the Energy Minister Angus Taylor has been doing some creative interpreting of those figures, saying that Australia's per capita emissions have reduced um, over the past years, even though our actual emissions have increased. I mean, what, what do we make of that? And do you think there's been enough scrutiny on the way that this data is communicated? Uh, no, there hasn't been. So, you know, the report shows that our emissions did go up compared with the previous quarter. So it was only 0.8%, but it's on an upwards trajectory. At this point in the game, our emissions should be going down, even under our very paltry um, commitments under the Paris Agreement. 
Um, so many sectors are achieving record high emissions, so on a per capita basis going down, but many of the sectors are going up. But the other thing is the government used this to spin this argument that, well, part of the reason that our emissions are going up is because we're exporting so much liquid natural gas, LNG, out of Queensland, and a lot of that comes from the process of fracking. But overall, globally, you know, it reduces emissions, uh, and that's just a furphy. And it also uh, doesn't take into account the fact that the fugitive emissions of this sort of gas production, that is, the, the emissions that are lost in the manufacturing process aren't accounted for properly. So even though the government admits our emissions are going up, they've neglected to include all the data on the fugitive emissions. So the situation is actually worse in reality than what's in this government report. Uh, Cam Walker's with us from Friends of the Earth and uh, on that point he just made there are some interesting fact checks out there if you want to have a look uh, and yeah all of them have found that it was incorrect that our gas um, exports here reduced um, emissions globally uh, as well but there's there's other things happening I mean you're saying Cam that around the world in the states but also in the United States and also here in Australia we're looking to the states to uh, sort of drive climate action and uh, many are also looking to business and it was interesting there was some you know global finance um, newspapers all around the world were reporting BHP CEO Andrew McKenzie's speech of last week and he was he said a whole bunch of things and he's committing that company to looking at emissions and uh, he certainly presents himself as not being a climate change denier but he uh, said somehow they're going to try and control the emissions of its customers and I mean how big a deal is this and I, I suppose what's likely to come of it, it was certainly seen as a big deal around the world. Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of good aspects to this. The first one is that it's good to see BHP accepting the gravity of the situation and to actually talk about the notion of a climate emergency, which implies you can't just have kind of business as usual. So that's really good. Um, the fact that they accept the climate science is important because, as we know, there is this pushback from the climate sceptics in government. Um, and it gives this sense that, you know, the tide is shifting, state governments get it, more and more corporates get it, the federal government is looking isolated. But of course, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, they've committed to $400 million US to look into this low emissions investment, but they've already blown $20 billion US dollars on fracking, you know. So it's a, it's a tiny fraction. I think it's 2% of their net profit has been allocated into this low emission technology, and it's a commitment for the future. So, you know, I'm trying to park my cynicism and say, good move, you know, well played BHP, but really the next couple of years will prove whether they're fed income or not and at this point in the game putting you know two percent of your net profit into low emission technology i'd probably suggest for a company that has a, a carbon debt the scale of bhp that that's you know that's pretty paltry really in the grand scheme of things is it something at all cam that you think would have an indirect influence on other companies potentially taking up a similar type of initiative or make similar pronouncements about the climate emergency uh, yes, I think it will. I think that there is a, a, a moral example here that is really important, and I do acknowledge BHP for doing this. I think it's important that the tide shift or the, the gravitational centre of the debate shift, and that really requires all businesses to come on board. Um, I, I'm a little bit caught in the fact that, um, I, as I understand it, that $400 million, a big chunk of it will go into carbon capture and storage technology. Now, to my mind, that technology is the get-out-of-jail-free card for using coal and gas, but it's just not working at scale and already we've put more than $1 billion 
are into this technology. We've got nothing to see for it pretty much. And so it kind of disturbs me that there's a little bit of, you know, window dressing going on saying, yes, there is a climate emergency, but B, we're going to put a little bit of money into carbon capture and storage, which is probably not going anywhere anyway. So, you know, good on them for the leadership on the moral level, but really, you know, the time for tinkering around, tinkering around the edges on fossil fuels is long over. Mm. And we've been speaking with you on this program for many years, Cam, and I, um, I think we, we covered a BHP announcement some years ago as well, so it'll be good to keep our eye on, on it into the future. And um, just quickly uh, understand that the Victorian government has uh, protected an area called the Mitchell River Flood Plain from mineral sands um, exploration and mining. And it's interesting because we know, and I spent a little bit of time reading financial presses and, and the business pages because it's often interesting when it comes to climate change news, but we know that there's a shortage of things like mineral sands around the place so um, these kinds of activities are encroaching on areas that are used for for horticulture and that's what was going to happen here in Victoria but the Victorian government's kind of stopped that. Yes, indeed. So there is a proposal for a mineral sands project in the east of the state. We have had them in the northwest of the state before. The thing that's really been exercising the locals down there is it's a really important food bowl, particularly on the Mitchell River, um, and it's relatively stable in terms of food production, and it's really important in terms of jobs and producing a lot of Melbourne's fresh vegetables. So there's been a really strong campaign against it. This proposal from a company called Calbar is ongoing, but what the government's has done in the last week or so is intervene and say we'll protect a significant area of the floodplains where the food bowl is, where the veggies are growing. Um, I think that's a really good move. It shows the government is listening to the concerns of rural communities and I would expect it will also make this mineral sands project less viable because it will push it out of the floodplain and into an area where it appears there's less resource. So it's a really good first step. There's an environmental effects statement process which is underway. So, you know, it's still a live issue and hopefully the planning will make a call or a determination on that in the next couple of months. Well, we'll catch you again in a month's time and uh, thanks for bringing um, your views to all of those different issues this morning, um, Cam. Thanks. Always good to have a chat. Uh, it's not new that young people are walking away from private health insurance or not taking it up in the first place. But what is news is that many experts on private health insurance are saying that the industry is in a death spiral. Why has it come to this and what now? Well, we've asked our Jennifer Doggett, editor of the Crokey Health blog and chair of the Australian Healthcare Reform Alliance to join us. She recently wrote eloquently on this topic for the Saturday paper and it's great to have you on Triple R, Jennifer. Great to be here. And um, before we go to the here and now, it turns out having an historical understanding of pri private health insurance is important and it's something that you do write about in the Sunday paper. How long have these products been around? And I suppose what happened when Australia introduced Medicare in 1984? Well, private health insurance has been around for a long time in Australia since the sort of colonial era, I suppose, the gold rush era. So it is a really established part of Australian, Australia's health system. But I think part of the problem occurred when Medicare was introduced in the 1980s and it was introduced as, as a public compulsory universal health insurance system over the top of the existing private health insurance system. And there wasn't much thought at the time given to how these two systems could interact. So 
So Medicare effectively took over a large chunk of what private health insurance used to do. And ever since then, private health insurance has really been struggling to find a role within our health system. And it has sort of staggered along um, doing a bit of this and a bit of that and doing nothing very well. And with various government subsidies and and, um, support, it's managed to sort of stagger along. But it really is reaching the time when, um, as some other experts have said, it's becoming unsustainable. It's reaching the point where more people are leaving than are joining. And it's really time that we need to reassess what we want, if anything, from private health insurance, if there is a role for private health insurance um, within our contemporary health system. And and so what measures have been taken to try and encourage people to take up private health insurance in sort of recent times? Well, we spend a lot of money subsidising private health insurance as a sector, and that is one of the issues. We spend approximately $6 billion in direct subsidies, and that is through um, premium reductions for most people with private health insurance, and then another around $5 billion um, in, say, foregone tax through um, tax exemptions for people with private health insurance. So that's about a, a total of $11 billion a year. So I think that's important for people to understand that private health insurance is an expensive way of, of funding health care. We have, if we didn't have private health insurance, we, we would have an extra $11 billion that we could use to fund health care directly or to spend elsewhere in the health system. So really to, to um, justify its role, private health insurance would have to provide at least $11 billion worth of value to the Australian community. And it's certainly not clear that it's doing anything like that. And I mean, that it's been around for so long and we're still questioning its role and subsidising it. Um, it makes me, makes me wonder why... Um, a government would kind of force in some instances people to take up private health insurance when the public system seems to be doing a more efficient job. Yes, it is curious. Um, I think part of the reason, again, is historical. So when the 30% rebate was introduced, it was at the same time as the Howard government was introducing the GST and there was a lot of um, anxiety around that with older Australians, particularly people on um, pensions and fixed income, because the GST was, they were concerned it was going to have a negative impact on them. They were also concerned about healthcare expenses. So part of the the climate in which the rebate was introduced was to, um, you know, to, to placate some of the concerns of older people and pensioners around the GST by offsetting the cost of some of their private health expenses. So it's, yeah, it, it was, it's never really been looked at in a rational sort of independent policy sense. That $11 billion and the rebate for private health insurance has never been evaluated by an independent group such as the Productivity Commission or you know, subject to any kind of evaluation to see what it, it's been delivering. Um, I think governments have been a bit concerned and a bit wary of looking into it too closely for fear of what they might find in that it's not actually delivering value to the community and then they would have to deal with the significance of policy changes that would be involved in moving away from it and that's something that governments don't like to do. 
Yeah, and the fact that fewer people are, are taking out private health insurance, particularly younger people, suggests that there is a sense in the community that we're not getting value for money, and that's something that Stephen Duckett in a recent Grattan Institute report highlights. But, I mean, if fewer people are taking out private health insurance, that then means that, that premiums will you know, presumably go up as well. Where is this all heading, do you think? I mean, are we on, on a death spiral currently? Well, based on the, the Gretton research and some and trends in membership, where, as you said, there are more um, lower risk, younger people leaving, and more high, which leaves a pool of higher risk people, which then drives premiums up, and then which forces more people to leave private health insurance. So, yes, based on that research, uh, and as you said, Stephen Duckett has said, it does look like we're getting to a point where it will be unsustainable. Part of that is growth in premiums. Part of that is also that we've had slowing wage growth, and the gap between the growth in wages and growth in health insurance premiums is growing, so it's becoming less affordable for people. So, yes, we, you know, there... We don't know exactly what the point is at which it will become unsustainable anymore. It may well be that you know there is a, a small percentage of the community who will maintain their insurance at any cost, but it's certainly reaching the point or even past the point where we can expect that that's something that the average person would be able to afford and should pay for. And part of that reason, as you say, is that people are just finding it's not good value. They're not getting the benefit from it that they're, they're putting in in terms of their premiums. Yeah, and of course we've had um, sort of scandals, I suppose, for some junk policies as well that um, measures have been taken to get those out of the system. But who are these individuals that will keep hold of it at any cost? And I, I, I guess that they are getting value from private health insurance. I think for some people on the high incomes, the, you know, the cost is not significant for them. I think there are some people who... Um, you know, may have a specific health condition that, that they feel that they wouldn't be able to get care in the in the public system. I think a lot of people also are just ignorant of what is available in the public system or what alternatives are. So certainly, uh, you know, there are a lot of services available in our public health system and sometimes people aren't aware of what they could access. Also, people need to think about what their options are outside of private health insurance. So, you know, if they have, say, a line of credit on their mortgage, if they want to use something like a credit card or afterpay, for a lot of people that can be a much more efficient way and less costly way of paying for their health care. But often people don't think about those alternatives because they're so used to having private health insurance. And that raises an interesting point, I think, about education around people's options in terms of both the public and private health insurance. I mean, do we need to get better at, at communicating what people's options are? Yeah, I think absolutely. Part of the problem with private health insurance is that it's incredibly complicated and many of the complaints that, that the government gets about private health insurance is that people don't understand what they're covered for. That, you know, the health funds and sometimes government campaigns can make it seem like it is a necessity when really we have, a, a you know, a, a very robust, high-quality public health system where most people receive their care. You know, the private health sector is also important and does supplement some of those services, but private health insurance is certainly not the only way that people can pay for care in the private system. There are alternatives. Many younger people who perhaps are less conservative and are more used to switching brands are using those alternatives, like afterpay and using credit cards. Um, but for many older people that have held private health insurance for a long time, they're not as used to looking around at their options and switching, you know, switching their, their processes. And so they just hang on to it, even if it's not delivering good value for them. 
And hold that thought for a second while we remind people who we're speaking with. Jennifer Doggett is with us. She's editor of the Croaky Health blog and also chair of the Australian Healthcare Reform Alliance. But there is um, sort of a risk, isn't there, in, in dropping private health insurance now if you've been in it for a long time because of these sort of penalties. Like once you hit 31, um, you, you're pre- if you join before then, then, um, then you're okay. But if you join after, then your premiums keep rising. So there's some of these kind of measures um, in the system that means that people, once they've got it, don't want to let go of it just in case. Yes, that may be, that may play into some people's decisions. I think people need to look at exactly what they're paying and what they're getting, though. So um, it's to keep paying out something which people do not feel like they're getting good value, which is a product which, if it's not serving them well, then it may well be better for them to, you know, risk facing that penalty, knowing that they can always get back into private health insurance. Yes, they may, if, if they decide to in the future they may pay a penalty for that and that's something that people have to look at and also look at you know alternatives such as having to access um being able to access private health services outside of private health insurance so there's some good research which shows that if most people took the money they're putting into premiums and put that into a bank account um which they would then use for their health care expenses they would be way way ahead so for most people that is going to financially be a much better option even regardless of the age penalties that that people may have to pay if they if they don't have insurance after the age of 30. so it's really a matter of people for looking to look at all those options and as you said it's really important that we have some education and really clear information so people know what their choices are and can make the best decisions for them. Yeah and and we know that the current federal government is very intent on delivering a surplus and we just had a you know a round of tax cuts pass through parliament as well so presumably there's a limit to the extent to which they're willing to you know increase subsidies for private health insurance what does the, the future hold do you think? Well, I think it'll be very difficult for them to increase the subsidies. As I said, we're already spending $11 billion on that. There's no evidence that that is delivering value and there is some good evidence that that money would deliver much better value and much better health outcomes for the community if it was spent directly on public and private health services. So I think even the current government that is committed to private health insurance won't want to do that. I'm not sure what what they're going to do. I think their options in relation to continuing to sort of prop up a product that most people don't value are fairly limited. Um, I think it's really time that we need to have a systematic look at what the community wants in terms of um, healthcare funding, how we want to pay for our healthcare. There's no doubt that with our ageing population and with increasing healthcare costs, if we want to keep a world-class health system, we will need to pay more as a community for healthcare. And I think we need to have um, a really good think as a community about how we do that in a way that's efficient, in a way that's equitable, which allows everyone access to the, the world-class healthcare we can deliver and in a way that is, that is sustainable. I don't think private health insurance is that way, but I think we need to have a conversation about what our other options are. And, uh, I mean, that sounds like a natural end, but I do. I am curious, if the death spiral does come true and the private health insurance industry falls over, what's that going to do to our health system, do you think? Well, surprisingly, I don't think it will have as much an effect as people um, predict. I think we need to remember that private health insurance is only funds only 9% of our total health budget. So that means that 91% of health funding is not going to be affected. 
So, as, as I said, um, I think there are other ways people can fund private health services. So, I think we need to separate out private health insurance from the private health sector, the private hospitals, specialists, allied health. I think they all play a very important role, those private health providers, and it is important that people can access them. But I think there are other ways people can access, it, access them other than private health insurance. So, for example, you know, dental care is one that people often use private health insurance for, but it actually only funds, for even people with private health insurance, their insurance only funds 48% of their dental care. So people with private health insurance are already paying, you know, more than 50% of their own dental care. So taking away private health insurance and if it was replaced, say, with some sort of direct subsidy, I don't think people would notice the difference and, in fact, might be a lot better off. So, I mean, obviously, I think it's something we need to be looking at and need to be planning for, but I don't think it's going to be the disaster that um, some people are predicting. So, you know, 9% of our total health budget, even if it fell over tomorrow, would still leave 91% of health funding um, as is. Wow, really interesting stuff. Um, Jennifer, thanks for talking with us. And uh, and uh, uh, if you want to read more of her work, Jennifer Doggett's work, you can head to the Crikey Health blog and she's also chair of the Australian Healthcare Reform Alliance. Thanks very much. And regular listeners will know that we often speak about temporary migration on the grapevine because it's a huge issue for Australia. And recently we heard from CEDA, the Community Committee for Economic Development of Australia, which is arguing for more consistency in our temporary migration visas and believes we need to expand our intake of workers to grow the economy, particularly in high skills professions. This morning we're joined by journalist David Hardacre from Crikey, who's been looking at the other end of the temporary migration spectrum and the failure of our immigration policies to prevent the exploitation of tens of thousands of vulnerable people living and working here in Australia. And he's on the line and thanks for being with us, David. Hi. And we often hear that we uh, need to control our borders, but your visa game series in Crikey found that we have issues with tens of thousands of unlawful non-citizens living and working here, plus 200,000 people on bridging visas with ambiguous working rights, plus 800,000 or so temporary visa holders. All of these workers are more vulnerable to exploitation than other groups in our community. Is this aspect, do you think, of border control out of control in Australia? Well, I, look, I, yes. Uh, that's what our investigation shows. The, we, we start by looking at uh, the phenomenon of Malaysian arriving on a tourist visa and then within a week or, or so applying to be uh, applying for protection visas in other words a refugee visa now when you apply for that refugee visa you uh, automatically you know into the system and you will be assessed ultimately by the department of home affairs and if your uh, application is not back then you'll have the opportunity to appeal that at the administrative appeals tribunal so what's happened over the last three years is that this has presented itself as a system to be gamed by illegal labour operators focusing on, on Malaysian nationals. So we see that in, uh, if you go back three, four years, there were only 350 Malaysian nationals uh, coming to Australia on tourist visas and then applying for a protection visa. That's now ballooned out to more than 5,000 a year, ending up at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And so using this, gaming the system in this way, 
these uh, folks are getting four, five, six years uh, time in Australia to to work uh, legally. And and so we hear often that not, not well protected. So, sorry to interrupt, David. We hear often in terms of um, asylum seekers who arrive by boat to Australia that the the proportion of those who are genuine refugees is up around kind of 80 to 90%. But in this instance of people who are arriving by plane and then seek uh, a, a protection visa at that point, do we know how many of those are actually genuine refugees? Well, what we did focus on was the appeals rate to the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So there's a very large set-aside rate, um, it's called at the, uh, at the first point of um, uh, application, and then they go through to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and they only found in favour of 5% out of those many thousands of applicants were indeed genuine refugees. And as far as Malaysia is concerned, they would probably be refugees because of fear of um, a pers religious persecution, for example, back where they came from. But the very, very large majority were not seen to be um, genuine refugees. And you call it the, the visa game, your... Uh your investigation and I was really interested because on one hand you know we are calling for more compassion in Australia with regards to refugees and people seeking asylum here but in this instance where we're seeing really an underclass people that become an underclass in our employment system coming in in this way and so ultimately people are in a very vulnerable situation and Australian businesses seem to be benefiting from this. Is this kind of the direction that your investigation took, David? Well, I think that's the point. And, you know, ultimately, if you, if you go out to farms, you're in a remote area, you're, you're probably going to be, which is where a lot of, um, a lot of these people are going out and, 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 you know, getting cash jobs out in remote areas. So who's going to police that? And they are, there are periodic raids by the Australian Border Force, but not many. Uh, there's not a lot of unionisation of this sort of labour. So... Uh, you know, you ask, well, who's going to ring the bell? Um, who's going to actually raise the alarm that people are being mistreated, that they're not getting their proper wages, that they're having to pay half their wages in accommodation or, or transport to work? So, you know, it is they are the perfect circumstances for labour exploitation. And at the very extreme end, uh, it's considered that there are about, say, 15,000 uh, people working in the slave-like conditions in Australia, well beyond the reach of, of the authorities to be able to get in the way of that. So, yeah, and, and look, there are benefits from that system for some people. Uh, and, some, you know, it, it is a source of cheap labour, and, and labour, of course, is the, um, the largest price component for a lot of products that we buy. And you cite some examples of, of that type of explo exploitation and the conditions um, some of these people are subjected to, such as one instance where people have to drive 10 minutes just to get to a toilet and not being sort of able to do that during their fruit picking shift, for example, as well as chronic underpay underpayment and huge amounts of control over these people's lives. When you set out on this investigation, did you um, try to kind of reach out to farmers or, or people employed in the agricultural sector to get a sense of, of what life's like there and if so did you find people were willing to speak to you 
We, we did. My, my colleague did actually journey to some farms and we did get some information off the record. Uh, people are quite concerned about retribution uh, upon them, physical retribution, or they simply lose their, they lose their work. And, and, you know, the other side of the coin of this, of course, is that these are people who, who need the work, who need the money, and that's why they come here. So it's not easy for them to blow the whistle. But, yes, we, we, we received uh, uncorroborated stories about um, people being followed, people being threatened in, if, they, if they said that they wanted to join a union, for example, and be, and be paid, you know, on payroll. So, uh, yeah, they, they, absolutely. And the National Union of Workers uh, released a report, in fact, last Wednesday, which happens to coincide with our series, which found that, you know, despite... I mean, these, these things have been going on for some years, yet in April, May this year, the union found several hundred workers living in, uh, you know, being exploited, being paid well under award rates and having very little control over their lives. And the, and the case you cite, yes, is the, the worker who was unable to even go to the bathroom when she needed to, such as the control over, uh, that it's exerted over these people by labour hire contractors. David Haddock is speaking with us about his visa game investigations published in Crikey. And I wonder if we can talk about some of the responses from groups like farming organisations, farmers' federations and the like. Uh, I imagine there's concern about this for all sorts of reasons. But, I mean, one quote I remember from one of the articles that you've published was one farm, farming um, leader saying that, you know, farmers like to share profits but the way that things are working out, it's not really going in that way. Um, I mean, are people becoming increasingly uh, uncomfortable with, with what's happening in Australia, do you think, David? Um, well, whether or not they're becoming uncomfortable, certainly Emma Germano, who's uh, Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, uh, told a pers her personal story. She's a third-generation Victorian farmer, and uh, you know, she, uh, a couple of years ago, actually led an apology to what we might call undocumented workers. So she, yes, she came to the view that uh, you know, what she had come to do was you know, morally and ethically and uh, legally in a way wrong but uh, but she certainly led that in that uh, apology which was which was quite something so the um, the, the there is a practical problem which farmers confront, which is that, you know, in some instances, they simply need to get their, their product picked uh, and, and to market. And if, if it wasn't for, you know, temporary labour coming to them, it wouldn't be picked. So they are uh, attempting uh, to bring this issue into the open by having a, um, a, a visa which will... Will, will, will make this kind of practice legal and take it out of the shadows and take out that element of exploitation and also coercion and violence that underpins it. But, you know, practically speaking, um, our, uh, you know, supermarket retail setup is such that Coles and Woolworths do have a very dominant position. They're, they're able to command low prices from their vegetable and fruit suppliers. And, you know, if you kick the problem down the line, that ends up with cheap labour. 
Yeah, has there been enough focus on the implications of that, you know, ongoing and interminable price war between the two supermarket giants? Well, uh, you know, it's a really good question, and you, 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 I think what we as consumers have to face is that we probably pay lower prices because right at the low, at the bottom end of the chain, somebody's not being paid properly. Now, whether that is uh, the producer of uh, a garment over in Bangladesh or, you know, uh, a fruit in, in Australia, it's likely that prices are being kept low because labour costs are low. Now, and, you know, it's, it's the normal. For Australians, that's the normal. Um, would, I guess, ask yourself, would you be prepared to pay another 10 15% for, you know, a piece of, a piece of fruit? Um, you know, we're, we're, our, ba- our budgets are pretty finely balanced, so it's a it's a problem which yeah, people do tend to look away with it, uh, look away from it. I think. And do you think, though, many consumers are looking at one piece of fruit or the other, saying, oh, "If I, you know, it's cheap because of the exploitation of workers in the supply chain," or do you think people are sort of trusting that Australian businesses, particularly those based here with workforces? based here are being forced by regulators to do the right thing do you think there's you know where do, where do you think people are kind of you know, their understanding is about how serious some of these um claims are for for exploited workforces look i, I doubt that people really give it a second thought um there, there will be you know the occasional person who does and who will make their let's call them ethical shopping choices but i think for most people aren't engaged in that, in understanding the supply chain that gets, you know, gets produce to market. So, you know, people are very focused on, on simply trying to, you know, pay the rent or pay the mortgage and, and get by maybe with $20 spare at the end of the week. So I, I, I do sincerely doubt that people are looking at that. And, you know, it's not as though there haven't been exposés before of this kind of cheap labour phenomenon, um, yet it continues and, you know, it even it even continues at the immigration level. So up and down the chain, uh, I think it's something that people have looked away from. Yeah, it's really important to have stories in the media such as that um, that you've been part of producing at Crikey. One of the early uh, series to come out of the new INQ initiative. I'm interested, are you going to continue to work on this mm. particular story or um, what do you have kind of in the pipeline coming up? Well, I mean, I think these sorts of stories absolutely is what we're trying to work on um, at Crikey Inc., which is, you know, for those of you who may know Crikey, Inc. is a new part of Crikey which focuses on digging deep into bigger stories, like, you know, the consequences of visas. So what what we flushed out, I guess, during this particular bit of uh, investigation was that a whole level of the Australian judicial system, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, is in absolute meltdown and is not serving the interests of justice. And and that in, and that actually affects all of us. So uh, you know there are there are lots of offshoots, there are lots of dark corners, which we you know we feel do need to be investigated. And often it's a case of joining dots that are already out there, you know, that already exist and, and showing what happens when you, if you push at point A, what happens down at point E uh, for us. So, you know, it's putting the picture together. 
Well, thanks for sharing um, these reports with us and some of the background to it. And we'll keep an eye on what you you, you keep producing for Crikey Inc. Um, thanks, David. Absolute pleasure. Thank um, you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.